Hey, it's Diana. All by me onesie. What can I tell you? It's beginning to look a lot like, oh, that horrible time of year where everybody is super stressed out and crazy, crazy. Things are going on. Many things have happened in our lives. So I'm here by myself. And this is Fuck Shakespeare, but it's not going to be entirely Richard III today. It's going to be quite a mixed bag. So please bear with me. We have had some major events happen in the last couple of weeks, which is why you haven't heard from us. Erin had a bereavement in her family, rough one, and so she is not here with me now, and I don't know when she'll be ready to record again. So this will be our last one of the year, and we'll be back with the rest of Richard Three later on in 2024. Hey guys, 2024 is gonna be, and it has to be, it just fucking has to be a great year, okay? Because 2024, I don't know, I I like to grab for beautiful bits of hope and inspiration wherever I can find them. And numerology says 2024 adds up to eight. And eight is the number of abundance and wonderfulness. So I wish you all, in advance of our new year, I wish you abundance and glorious loveliness and all of the great things that you could possibly wish for and want. And please let us have that for our world and for all of the people who are suffering, who need some fucking relief, like ASAP. Ah, okay. <laughs> So on that note, what I'm going to do today is tell you about a project that I am working on and that is going to be presented tomorrow. So if you have heard me talk about this, I am pursuing my master's at the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is a wonderful delight because I live and walk every day in the footsteps of Shakespeare and it's been fantastic. I love it so much. I see so much theater and I'm talking about Shakespeare with super geek geniuses who love to think and talk like I do. Okay, maybe with far fewer F words, but you know. <laughs> so they are here studying with me and it's a really quite a collection of incredible scholars. And we had an assignment to find, now stick with me here, find the intersection of Shakespeare and climate change and to construct an event around this. Now, it's not immediately obvious. No, no. But we did our best. And what I thought I'd tell you about today is all of the things that we learned while putting this together. So one of the things that we get to do every week at the Shakespeare Institute is have a seminar on Thursday afternoons with some muckety-muck or other, and the very first one being Professor Sir Stanley Wells. Perhaps you have heard me mention him because he wrote a great book called Sex, Love, and Shakespeare, which y'all should go out and get. 
he was our very first one because he was a past president of this institution. And he is a very famous author about all things Shakespeare. So yeah, if you haven't heard from him, go check him out. But then a few, fast forward a few weeks, and we had this cool seminar with a guy named Ben Higgins. And he got up to the podium and he goes, hey guys, uh, funnily enough, I'm not going to say anything about Shakespeare today. And we're like, hey, dude, we feel you because there's a lot of Shakespeare that gets banded around these halls and it's okay. We're with you anyway. So he told us about this event that used to happen back in Shakespeare's day and beyond Shakespeare called the Frost Fair. Now, in 1380, up until about 1850, there was this climate change phenomenon called the Little Ice Age. So I know we all think, oh, fuck, climate disasters are only happening to us now. But it ain't true. There was this incredible freezing period where average temperatures dropped way below where they had been in previous centuries. And the people experienced these terrible, terrible freezing winters. And at one point, the Thames River in London froze over for six to eight weeks solid. And people couldn't believe it. They were like, wait, what the fuck? You can walk on the river? That's insane. And after a couple of winters of this, they got bold and they decided to make the most of this awful situation. And they set up a fairgrounds on the river where you could go and have food and gather around a fire. Seems dangerous on the ice. And there was a printing press that they dragged out onto the ice. And you could get a little memento that was printed with your name that said, I... George Schnubli was here on February 2nd, 1608. And it was this cool thing that you could take home and show to your kids and be like, look at this. It's my name in print. This was a big deal for people who didn't even read a lot of times. And so some of those cards are really interesting because the person was trying to help the printer know how their name sounded might be spelled, and the printer would make some very strange spellings of names oftentimes. So those cards are really cool, and they are mementos of these frost fairs. And the last one was in like 1720 or something. So pretty recently, you know, I mean, not, but pretty recently as human history goes, okay? So I'm going to read you a little bit of this cool research that my friend Rachel, my co-student Rachel, did. And then I'm going to tell you about the piece of the event that I put together. Frost fairs as liminal spaces. In the printed images of early modern London, Joseph Montaigne argues that frost fairs are a liminal space as extreme weather caused Londoners to shift from the center of the metropolis to the margins where they appropriated a threshold space and forged a new urban community. Rivers are innately liminal, being an ambiguous space or threshold between two banks. When it freezes solid, it allows people to inhabit that liminal or uncanny space 
defamiliarizing their day-to-day activities. The slippage between categories entailed in the frozen river is emphasized in these lines from the 1684 broadside Great Britain Wonder or London's Admiration. And the writer says, Behold the wonder of this present age, a famous river now become a stage. Question not what I now declare to you. The Thames is now both fair and market too. So here, the river not only shifts between ecological feature to man-made fair or market, but also a stage. So you could go to the river and even see plays, which was really cool. So we decided, hey, what if we had a frost fair right here in Stratford, right near the river? So we've put together this whole event that is going to educate people about frost fairs and also to tell people that we are not the only ones who are experiencing climate disaster and ecological freakout because back in Shakespeare's day, they were also going through this. And how will we learn from our own climate change disasters and how can we quote, make the best of things, unquote. So it was a fascinating, fascinating journey to try to use Shakespeare as a lens to see what were they doing in those days compared to what we are experiencing now. So that time period, the early modern time period, was when they actually started to burn fossil fuels, particularly sea coal. And that had, as we know, lasting, horrible change effects for us, right? But I had no idea that that began right around Shakespeare's time. So Rachel continues to write, In 1608, sea coal became a means of resolving the fuel poverty caused by the Little Ice Age. Looking retrospectively, this is ironic, as the burning of these fossil fuels has contributed to the climate disaster we are facing today. So the part that I am playing in this 21st century frost fair, besides being the costume maker, because I took that on myself, because having made made so many costumes for so many years, I was like, sure, yeah, this is one of my areas of strength, and I will lend that. But it turned out to be quite an interesting challenge, because I set myself the task of not buying any new fabric of any kind to make costumes. So I made costumes out of only recycled clothing that was available from things that are the equivalent of the Salvation Army and stuff here. They call them charity shops. And in the charity shops, they have everybody's castaway clothing and you can go get them. So I got a bunch of castaway clothing and I made these cool costumes. And I also went dumpster diving and I got some really wild materials. So I just made this cool headdress for Puck out of that plastic strapping stuff that they wind up around, you know, packages that you get from Amazon and whatever, or refrigerators and such. So that was a fun challenge. And then we designed this walk that our patrons are going to take with us through the gardens that are just outside our venue. And we're going to talk to them about trees and climate change, about the River Avon and climate change, and various things like that. And today we took our cohort on that walk and people said they learned stuff. So I'm going to read you a little bit of our script from that walk as well. On one of the stops, 
I lead the participants to a yew tree, speaking the following, which you might recognize from Midsummer Night's Dream. Over hill, over dale, through a bush, through a briar, over park, over pale, through a flood, through a fire, I do wander everywhere, swifter than the moon sphere. And I serve the fairy queen to dew her orbs upon the green. I must go seek some dewdrops here and hang a pearl in every cowslip's ear. At which point I am standing by an ancient yew tree. Well, not an ancient one, a large yew tree. And yew trees have been kind of a theme for me while I've been staying in England because they're magnificent and they're everywhere and they're super cool. So here's what I say about the yew tree. This is obviously not a cowslip. It's a yew tree, one of the most ancient and iconic trees of the English landscape. Although Bottom and the fairies would not have seen a yew tree in the wood outside of Athens in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare would have been very familiar with them and the lore that surrounds them. Many cultures have mythology about the yew tree. The Romans believed that yews grew in hell. The Irish say the yew is one of five sacred magical trees and can be used in spells to communicate with the dead. That's right, the yew has always been a favorite with witches. The yew is associated with immortality and is often planted in churchyards. They may also have been planted there to keep people from letting their cattle graze there, as every part of the yew is poisonous to eat for people and large mammals. But birds and squirrels happily eat the bright red berries all through the winter. Despite their inedibility, the toxins found in yews are being used to create anti-cancer drugs. So, as Friar Lawrence observes in Romeo and Juliet, within the infant rind of this small flower, poison hath residence and medicine power. For this, being smelt, with that part cheers each part, being tasted, slays all senses with the heart. Two such opposed kings encamp them still, in man as well as herbs, grace and rude will. And where the worser is predominant, full soon the cankered death eats up that plant. So Friar Lawrence tells us that there are some plants that it's fine to touch them and smell them, but as soon as you taste them, you will die. And he's likening that to qualities in human beings, he says grace and rude will as opposites, right? So when we have grace, we behave well and we do good things. When we have rude will, which as we know, will, Shakespeare used often to imply sexual impulse. When we have too much of that, we behave badly and make mistakes. So I went on to say, Yew wood is extremely strong and flexible. Henry V made longbows out of yew and defeated the French at Agincourt. The oldest living wooden artifact is a spearhead made from yew that is 450,000 years old. Yews are extremely long-lived and are not considered ancient yews until they are more than 900 years old. There are more than 10 yew trees in, the, in Great Britain that are more than 1,000 years old. And one is very close to Stratford in a little town called Much Markle in Herefordshire. This yew that I'm standing by is probably a baby and only about 100 years old or so. So 
I don't know how many yew trees we have in the United States, but if you see one, ah, dad jokes abound. If you see one, go up and uh, take a look, but do not taste. <laughs> All right, my friends. I know that was a bit of a, a wild card, but hopefully you learned something. And go and look up the Frost Fair because it's a cool thing that I never knew one damn thing about until I came here and heard Mr. Ben Higgins speak. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for being such a kind, sweet audience throughout this year. And I hope you've enjoyed all of our programming. We will come back in January. I don't know if I'll say better than ever because, you know, I think we did some pretty fucking good things in the last couple of years. But we will come back strong. All right. Love you guys. Ciao, ciao. Goodbye.